Hey there, Fellowship Baptist Church, Pastor Aaron here. Uh, my apologies that our service couldn't be streamed this morning, but this will have to do. I'll just preach to an empty building, so just yell amen a little louder from home and maybe I'll hear it. Uh, but this, uh, I'm happy to provide this for you. Just a couple of the updates that were given in service is that I'll be on vacation this week. Um, so if you need any uh, information or you need anything, please contact Harv Salty as our chairman of the board, or Norman Nielsen, and Pastor Dave, our interim associate pastor, will be back from his little jaunt away on Wednesday. So uh, please feel free to keep in contact with the church, and we'll be jumping back in the book of Acts next Sunday. But for today, we're here at our last message in our sermon on the liberty of self-forgetfulness, which is the art of living a gospel-humble life in a gospel-humble manner, and not a slave to our egos or stuck in the courtroom of the opinions of other. Just as way as um, a refresher from the weeks past, in week one, we talked about the broken condition of the human ego, how we all operate out of this ego that is uh, puffed up by pride, that's broken, that is always constantly wanting to make conversation about moi, about me, myself, and I. You can't sit in a conversation. We all know a person like this who they work everything about them. You tell them you're sick. Well, they, they've been sick. They're sick too. You tell them a cool story. Well, they tell you one better. They're always connecting everything with themselves rather than just enjoying the conversation and hearing how you're doing. And then in week two, we contrasted the brokenness of our ego that is not filled up but puffed up and we want it to be filled up with grace we contrasted that with how Paul is living he is living outside of the courtroom he is living in light of what Christ has said about him and we contrasted that how we often live which is out of a broken ego and we called that the transformed view of self and now this week we're going to wrap them all together and we're going to talk about how do we get this transformed view of self? What does it look like to live how Paul is calling us and the Corinthians to live? So with all that recap, we'll give a little bit more recap after we read the verses. But with all that recap, let's read our verses. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll pick it up right in verse 8 to 13. Verse 8 says, Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you have become kings, and would that, uh, and would that you would reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all. That's an interesting point. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You, uh, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To, pr to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, just imagine putting that on your cover letter and your next resume, the scum of the world and the refuse of all things, because that's what Paul is saying about himself and the apostles. But with the word of God being read, let's take a moment and pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your spoken word. Father, I thank you for your living and active word. 
God, I pray that this message would go forth and uh, and convict us where we need to be convicted and show us where we need to conform all the more to your son. Father, may we truly live in a self-forgetful, gospel, humble way with our lives orientated to you and others. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we see in all those verses from verse 8 to 13, we see, uh, and in our past verses, this upside-down character of the Christian faith, that when we believe in Christ, it changes everything. This is how Paul is living, and this is how he is calling the Corinthians to live, and this is how he's calling you and I to live as well, which is a a state of self-forgetfulness. Remember from weeks past, Paul is talking about how he doesn't care what the Corinthians think about him. He doesn't even care what he thinks about himself. And he even goes one step further and says, even if his conscience was clear that he was innocent, that doesn't make him innocent. And the word innocent comes from the word justify. And the word justify is the same one that Paul would use throughout the book of Romans and Galatians. Here, Paul is saying that even if his his conscience is clear, that does not justify him. The justification I'm talking about is the justification that we find only in Christ, which leads to our salvation. What Paul is looking for is what we are all looking for. It's what we talked about last week, is that ultimate stamp of approval, the verdict, that something would tell us, be it sin, be it people, be it society, that we are important and that we are valuable. We look for that verdict in every day, in every situation, and in people around us, which means we are on trial every single day of our lives. We put ourselves back into the courtroom every single day. But Paul is living This upside-down view of self. The way down is up for Paul. The way of weakness is strength. The way of poverty is the way of riches. You see, Paul is living on a different, different level than the Corinthians. And if we were being honest, we could say that Paul is also living on a different level than we are as well. But not a level that is unattainable by us. You see, the Corinthians and we are so often stuck in that evaluation cycle that I talked about last week. We get stuck in it and we get stuck constantly comparing ourselves and basing our success on the accolades and acceptance of others. But Paul fights against this notion. Paul is saying the problem with this cycle is that it focuses so much on self-esteem, be it high self-esteem or low self-esteem. And because of that, Every single day we're in the courtroom. Every single day we're on trial. This is how everyone's identity works. Doesn't matter who you are. In the courtroom, you have the prosecution and the defense. And everything we do provides evidence for either the prosecution or evidence for the defense. And some days we feel as we are winning the trial and other days we feel as we're losing it. That some days we're winning, some days are good, and other days, and most days, we feel like we're losing it. But Paul says he has found the secret. He's found the key. Paul is out of the courtroom that he knew and we know too well. Paul is free from the brutal cycle. It's over. It's gone because the ultimate verdict is in for us. Paul, It's in for Paul, and it's in for us. Court has been adjourned. We don't and no longer need to be in the courtroom. And you might be thinking, well, how? can that be? Well, remember, Paul knows that 
the Corinthians can't justify him, and he knows that he can't justify himself. But what he knows is where we kind of focus last week's message on is that it's the Lord who judges him, and it's only the Lord's opinion that counts, and it's only the Lord's opinion that matters, which shines a clear light on the meaning of our verses today that we read. Paul can say these things about himself because it is the Lord's opinion that matters and not what anyone else thinks or even what he thinks. And amazingly, everything that Paul says in this text can only be said about himself and the other apostles and Christ followers because it was said of Christ first. We look, just look at verse 9 with me for a moment. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles the last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. So when you read verse 9, what you need to have in mind is a gladiator. It's a picture of a person or people who are being ushered into the Colosseum to be devoured by wild animals in front of everyone as a spectator. Remember what a Colosseum looks like. It's a big circle, and in the middle is where all the action happens. It's a picture of a person who is being directed to their own demise. This is what Paul is saying it's like to be an apostle. It's like a gladiator who is being directed to his own death. And what is mind-boggling about this is if we interpret Scripture with Scripture, which, uh, spoiler alert, we're supposed to do, we see that Jesus in Hebrews 3.1 is considered the great apostle. So everything, meaning everything Paul has just described, is also painting a picture for us of Christ, who was not only sentenced to death, but he also experienced it. He was exhibited as a public spectacle to all the world as he hung naked on the tree, exposed, beaten and whipped, hanging there and dying as he's being mocked, just like a gladiator would be being cheered on to his death. Verse 10 goes on to say, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Christ was the wisdom of God, and that was considered foolishness by men. He became weak, and in that weakness, he exhibited his greatest strength. And it was a sub, and it was subject to the greatest and ultimate disrepute that sinners might receive the greatest honor. So sinners, that scoundrels, could become saints. You see, anything true about us as followers of Christ Jesus, or in Paul's case, what is true of an apostle, is only true because it was first true of Christ. He was hated, so will be hated. He was persecuted, so the world, uh, the Bible says we shouldn't be surprised when we're persecuted. He was considered foolish and weak, and the same could be said about you and I who are in Christ, because that's how the world sees us. But then we get to verse 12 to 13, which are perhaps the most unique and jarring statements in uh, uh, the paradox of the gospel anywhere in Paul's letters. Our minds, again, as we read this, we think of Paul, but we can't help but think of Christ. Let's read together. It says, And we labor and working on our own hands. When reviled, we bless. What do you do when you're reviled? Do you bless? Is that your natural instinct, is to bless when reviled? When, when persecuted, we endure. 
Do you endure when you're persecuted or do you throw a tantrum? When slandered, we entreat. When we become and we still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's sinking to the bottom of the metaphorical barrel to press his point home. He picks up on words that were commonly translated as trash, mud, garbage, and even excrement. Paul says that the treasures of the kingdom are the trash of the world. The treasures of the kingdom are the trash of the world, which offers great hope to anyone who's in this room or watching online who do not measure up. The trash of the world is made into the treasure of the kingdom because Jesus, the ultimate treasure, became like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Christ became like trash so we could be like treasure. The gospel says that our evaluation is not ultimately based on what we think of ourselves or what others think of us, but on what God thinks of us. And God ultimately evaluates sinners on the basis of what they think of Jesus and if they're in Christ. Then this should change the way individuals think about themselves. It turns failures upside down. It points us towards success. You see, it's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance. The atheists might say that they get their self-image from being a good person, and I, I know this, I've talked, I've, I have a lot of conversations with atheists, that they, they're a good person, this is where they get their self-image from, but all along, deep down inside them is this inner turmoil that they would eventually would get a verdict that confirms that they are a good person, that people would see that they're a good person. You see, they're running on this hamster wheel, always trying and doing and doing and doing, doing good things, so people would think that they are good people. You see, in the atheistic worldview, performance, the hamster wheel, performance leads to the verdict. There's no different for Buddhists. If you're a Buddhist, your performance leads to the verdict. If you're a Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. This All this means is that you are putting yourself in the courtroom every day, that you're putting yourself on trial, that people would judge you and give you that ultimate stamp of approval that you are, in fact, a good person. And it's exhausting, and that's the problem. But Paul comes along and says that in Christianity, those who are in Christ, the verdict leads to the performance. Did you hear that? The verdict that God gives you on the basis of his son leads to your performance. This is why you will hear me commonly confess in conversation and in prayers that Christians don't fight for victory. They fight from victory because your victory has already been won in Christ Jesus. That means when you battle against your pornography addiction, you're not battling to overcome. You're actually fighting from victory. You're not fighting for victory. Your pornography issue has already been won in Christ. So what that does is you need to rethink how you fight your sin, that you fight from an area that Christ has already won it for you. And now you get to live from that. It's the same with gambling issues. You're not trying to fight for victory. You already have victory. You just need to start living from that, and that will fuel the way that you fight for 
your freedom from that sin, to kill it and to destroy it. And you can do that with all sins. Your sin has been conquered in Christ Jesus. And now you who live in Christ Jesus live from this area of victory over sin. You just, you're the one who's putting yourself back into bondage by going to it. We're all prone to that. We're prone to wander. And it's the same with how we perform. We don't perform well to receive a good verdict. We have received the best verdict possible, which now instructs and guides our our performance. In Christianity, this is what's amazing. The moment you believe, the very nanosecond you put your faith in Christ, this doesn't happen weeks later or months later, the very second the words in Romans 8.1 ring true that says there is no longer, therefore, condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. The verdict is stated and true. And now you are free to live outside of God's condemnation and freely to live in gospel-humble, self-forgetful state that is orientated towards bringing glory and honor to God and all you say, do, and act, and also to be orientated towards others. You see, we like the God part. Yeah, sure, I'll bring glory and honor to God. But we don't always like the other part. You actually mean I have to be self-sacrificial to the person sitting next to me, even though they hurt me? To my neighbor in this church who has hurt me, I have to love them? Yes, your life is a self-forgetful life of yourself that is orientated to bring glory and honor to God and to others, to serving others, to be invested in others. When you become a Christian, the moment you believe, God imputes his perfect performance through Christ in you if it was your very own. It'd be like all the gold medals that Canada has just won, they become yours just because you're a Canadian. Meaning you just get in the mail, there's gold medals that, hey, you didn't go down that bobsled or you didn't go down that, that ski ramp or play that hockey game. But here, yes, gold medal is just as much yours as it is mine because you're Canadian. It's the same thing. With Christ, we receive his performance, even though our performance was disastrous, sinful, and God, and dishonoring to God. We now receive his performance, which is perfect because we are in Christ. Meaning, this means that you don't need to strive to have a perfect performance to be accepted. You don't have to strive to build up this professional resume for God to say, okay, now you're worth me giving you my son's performance. No, he knows you're a sinner. And he's taken your sin. And he has given you his son's righteousness. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. God took our filthy rags and he took our own failures. He took our sins. He took all of our impurities. Even the best that we would have to offer was rubbish before the Lord. But he took it and he exchanged it for his son's robes of righteousness. Our filth for Christ's cleanliness. Our sin for Christ's righteousness. Our failures for Christ's success. Our lives for Christ's life lived. You see, Christ's performance now counts as our performance, which means we are evaluated by Christ's performance and not our own, which should transform how you see ourselves, how you fight sin, how you make decisions, how you love your spouse, how you raise your families. We are living from Christ's finished work on the cross. We're actively living from it, and we're living in it and not striving for it. And what's beautiful is after he's imputed Christ's, uh, Christ's perfect performance to us, he takes it one step forward and he adopts us. 
He adopts us into his family as sons and daughters of the God Most High. In other words, God can now say about you what he once said about Christ, that, he, he, that you are my son. You are my daughter whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Let that sink in for a moment. In Christ, God loves you, and he is pleased with you. The verdict is in. And now you and I perform based on that verdict because he loves us and he accepts us. We do not have to do things just to build up this professional resume to look more impressive to God for him to bless us because he is already wholly impressed because of Christ. He says, those who are in Christ, you can come confidently and boldly before my throne which gives you the freedom to do things for the joy of just doing them. You feel the weight fall off your shoulders as you think of that, that you can just help people to simply help them. Not so you can feel better about yourself, not so you can take a picture of you helping someone else and post it on social media to fill some void of emptiness to show how caring you are. That's just garbage. This is, why li- this is what life is truly about. Gospel life is about deferring, about pursuing someone else's interests. It's about being humble and not, uh, and not being arrogant. It's about giving and not always receiving. It's about wealth distribution and not wealth acclamation. It's about leveraging uh, uh, one's power and influence. If God has given you a position of power and influence, it's about, it's about leveraging your power and influence for those who are powerless. Only the inverted, upside-down, ironic paradigm of the kingdom of God through the person of Jesus Christ will help us to be noble and heroic in the truest sense of the term. And as we filter everything through the finished work of Jesus who laid down his life for us, we can too live how Paul is living, out of the courtroom, free from trying to feed our self-esteem, free from the prisons of others, uh, uh, sorry, the prisons of others' accolades and approvals, free from living fake lives on social media or in front of others to seem more interesting or important because Jesus went to trial for you. Jesus went to the ultimate courtroom for you. Jesus was on trial. It was an unjust trial, but he did not complain. Rather, he was like a lamb before the shears. He was silent and he was struck. He was beaten and he was put to death. Why? Because Jesus was our substitute. He took our condemnation we deserved. He faced the trial that should have been ours so that we would be free. So we could go to God for acceptance through Christ Jesus, wearing his righteous robes because he took our filthy rags. And because of that, the only person's opinion who counts is God's. And look at you and me. And he looks at you and me and finds us more valuable than all the jewels on earth because of Christ. But maybe you're watching this today and you believe the gospel. Just like me, you believe the gospel and perhaps you've done so for years, but every day you find yourself getting sucked back in, back into the human courts, back into your self-made prisons of comparison. And all I can tell you to do, one thing you won't hear from me is here's seven steps to success. But all I can tell you to do 
is to relive the gospel every day of your life to relive it every time you pray, to relive it every time you go to church, to relive the gospel on the spot every day. We see, we as Christians, we like to think we can graduate past the gospel. We say things that are dumb, like the gospel is only for those who are not saved. No, the gospel is for you who are in Christ every day. We need the gospel every day because we forget the gospel every day. We need the gospel when we wake up. We need the gospel when we go to work. We need the gospel when we sit with our family. We need the gospel even when we go to Walmart. We need the gospel every day, and we need to preach this truth to us every day and ask ourselves when we find ourselves in the, being sucked back in, why am I in this courtroom? Why am I here? I shouldn't be here. The court has been adjourned. The judge has made his rule. He has given his ultimate verdict, and I am free in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? So preach those truths to yourself until they become your reality, until they become sweeter to your mouth than honey. You will never exhaust the gospel for all of its truth. It's like a dunked rag in water. You can keep ringing and ringing and ringing it, and water will just keep pouring and pouring out because the gospel, Christ, is an inexhaustible fountain of joy that you will never exhaust. The gospel is for you. If you're a Christian for a month or a Christian for 60 years, you need the gospel every day. Preaching the gospel can look to yourself. Preaching the gospel to yourself can look many ways. And one of my favorite examples as we close is from Psalms 42, verses 5 to 11. If you have time, read the whole psalm. Today, we're just going to pick it up in verse 5. Look at what the psalmist is saying. He talks to his own soul. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Or you could translate as, why are you depressed, O my soul? He's speaking to his soul. He says, why are you in turmoil within me? And what does he say to his soul? He commands his soul, hope in God. And then he makes a declaration. I shall praise again. Sorry, I shall again praise his name, my salvation and my God. He's reminding himself. He's making a confident declaration that he will praise his God who is his salvation. He says again, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, what does he do? He remembers God. He lists some things. He says, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. What, what's he doing is he's remembering the faithfulness of God because his soul is forgetting the gospel. His soul is forgetting that God is faithful. This is why I tell you so often to keep a journal of what God is doing in your life because when your soul forgets, when you forget the gospel yourself because you will, you can grab that journal and go, God was faithful yesterday. God was faithful last year. And God will be faithful today, and he will be faithful tomorrow. This is what he's doing. He's talking and reminding himself of the faithfulness of God. He goes on and says, deep calls out to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his hesed, his steadfast love. And at night, his song is within me. His problems are pouring into the night, but his song, his voice is singing out to God. Uh, a prayer to God of my life. I say to God, my rock. He's making declarations. God is my rock. But then he gets real with God. And this is important. This is part of lamenting. 
Tell God how you're feeling. He, look at how the psalmist says, why have you forgotten me, God, my rock? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As within a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries, they taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? How many times have you asked yourself that question? Where are you, my God? He returns to his soul. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me again? Hope in God. He's still facing problems. He just talked about them. But hope in God. I shall praise him again. My salvation and my God. So you, as you preach the gospel yourself, you need to take time each day to gaze at the beauty of Christ. Have the scriptures open in front of you and gaze at his beauty. I know we're busy. Take five minutes. Take one minute a day and gaze at the beauty of Christ and preach those truths to you. Picture Christ on the cross and what he's done for you. Gaze upon him. And then remember who God is in that process and who you are in Christ, which we've just spent three weeks talking on. And then rest in the power and provision of God. That's what it frees you to do is to rest. And resting is not passivity. It's activity. It's active. Require yourself to rest. Not because your circumstances have somehow changed and now they're easy. Look at the psalmist in Psalm 42. He goes on saying, hey, why are you downcast? Trust in the Lord. I know God is faithful. But hey, my enemies still, they're taunting me. They're asking me where you are. Have you forgotten me, oh my Lord? But again, I will hope in you confidence. He's resting. You can rest in God in the midst of your turmoil, not because it's easy, but because of who God is. Remember, your circumstances look big, but God is greater, and he begins to eclipse your circumstances. Remember, the word eclipse does not mean replace. It means overshadow, and, he, and be, who God is overshadows your problems. Your problems are still real, but who God is is greater. And it requires, and it enables you, sorry, to rest, which will lead you to act. It will lead you to act on this basis, on this truth, to be confident in the midst of the storm. You'll, you need to develop these habits to let the gospel be your hermeneutic for life. And hermeneutic is just a fancy word for letting the gospel interpret culture for you. What does this mean? What do these situations mean? Why are these things happening? Let it tell you how things should be solved, the problems you're facing. Filter your life, every decision, even small ones, through the lens of the gospel. Because if you don't preach these truths to yourself, you will preach something else. You will preach something else. You will preach the secular liturgies of this world that you're bombarded with every single day. It's on your TVs. It's in our schools. It's in our education systems. It's on posters. It's on your cell phones. It's on social media. The world is telling you how to think, and it's curating this information to make you uh, uh, to fall in line, to understand, and to become part of the social liturgies that this is how you should think, and this is how you should think about that. So if you don't preach the gospel to yourself, the word of God, the truth of God that will never fade away, you will preach the ideologies of the world to yourself and believe them, end up back in the courtroom, running on the treadmill of looking for the verdict from someone else, another well that is dried up and not the living well that is Christ Jesus. 
And it is truly, friends, that black and white. One will replace the other. Be in your word. Preach it to yourself daily. Pray this word because it's alive and active and live it until your life is like that upside down nature that Paul is talking about. That your life is foolishness to the world, but it's wise in Christ. This is the paradigm of grace. The way up is down. To be first, one must be last. To be a leader, one must follow. To gain glory, one must know suffering. To be elevated, one must be humble. And if we were to embrace this paradox, just think about what would happen. How do we treat each other? And how would we treat Drumheller if we embrace that? The way up is down. To be first is to be last. To gain glory, you must know suffering. To be elevated, you must be humble. To, what would happen if we embrace that? How would we treat each other? How would we treat this society around us? Because when we embrace this, it would enable us to be completely fine without getting all the credit in all situations. We would be fine lifting up other people as long as the team wins. We're a family here. We're a family. We don't just gather because we, we find it convenient. We gather because we're a family. And it doesn't matter if I get all the credit. It matters that the team wins. We can make a meaningful contribution without necessarily having to be noticed along the way. Amen. Well, I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Let me pray for you before you get back to your days. Father, I praise you and I thank you, Lord, for technology that even when it does go sideways, we can find a different way to provide your preached word. God, I pray that the words spoken today, Lord, would, would not fall upon deaf ears, but fall upon ears that can hear, hear your spirit moving. Father, I pray for salvation. Father, I pray that those who don't know you would see this and hear the truth of your message and come to a saving faith. Lord, may we all know your word and live your word. The psalm says, how does a young man keep his way pure? It's by being in his word, by memorizing his word, by committing to his word, by following his word, Lord. Let us be like that. Let us know your word, preach it to ourselves until we believe it, until it becomes our life, until it becomes sweeter than honey. I ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Now may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause the countenance of his face to shine upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.